Welcome to the Experience Ed podcast. I am Jim Steller. I am Mary Churchill. And I'm Adrian Dooley. We bring you this podcast on experiential education with educators and thought leaders from around the country and the world. We are pleased today to be interviewing Paul Harrington, a labor market economist who is a professor in Drexel University's School of Education, already an interesting beginning, and who came to that post from Northeastern University, another cooperative education school. Professor Harrington also serves as the director for the Center of Labor Markets and Policy. He has published on a variety of research topics ranging from health labor markets to college labor markets to disability in the labor market to economic outlook. But where we want to begin today is with the 2011 report you wrote with Nita Fogg, Rising Malemployment and the Great Recession, the growing disconnection between recent college graduates and the college labor market. We want to talk with Professor Harrington about this phenomenon of malemployment. Welcome. I remember you from Northeastern. Yeah, um, I was here many years ago. You know, it was back in 2000. Uh, you know, your name is very familiar to me, Mary. But I don't think I was, we've met. I was there 94 to 2009. So I was there, yeah, mostly. I was there that whole time, yeah. Let's get into this. Sure, sure. Okay, so um, welcome and thank you for joining us on this new podcast venture that Jim and Adrian and I are on. Um, I finished reading your article last night, this morning, the combination. It's amazing. I've already started talking to folks in the School of Ed where I'm working about it and saying, um, we can't just train people to be teachers. Like we have to give them some other skills that will make them more marketable. Um, but before we dive into this uh, conversation about the study on malemployment, I was very interested. I added this question. Um, what has drawn you to this topic and, and two really strong co-op schools as well? So why did you choose your field of labor market economics and have you ever been malemployed? So, so yes, good questions. You know, one is, um, no, I've never been malemployed. Uh, I was always a kid that worked a lot. I, pretty early on, I got savvy about how to get jobs and understand, you know, early, you know, work, you know that kind of work experience, what it does is it kind of gives you a better understanding about how to build networks, connections, what it takes. Yeah. Um, my interest in, in, uh, in labor economics really came uh, from my ed undergraduate education. I started off studying politics, and as I got to it, I found it didn't have many answers. I took an economics course and said, ah, these guys got it, you know? And I just became very curious about it and started getting involved in economics pretty extensively, and then decided I really liked this labor field, got involved with some professors who were really good, you know, allowed me to kind of do some interesting things when I was an undergraduate, and, um, and then that teed me up for a post-graduation job at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Um, and cooperative education played a really important role in that um, uh, and allowed me to get a job in the federal government that a college kid just could not have gotten. It was a cooperative right. education system that allowed you to do that. So, so you know, I, I, I had sort of an intuitive appreciation of the idea of mixing work and school based on my own experience. But, um, and then there's the question, okay, does it really matter? How does it work? What are the gains to it, if any? You know, yeah. that's more kind of a scientific empirical set of issues. Yeah, I know it's interesting that you say that you haven't been because of this working class background. I, I also, with a working class background, I feel like 
I'm always on the hustle, right? Like I'm always hustling for the next side hustle or like something. I've always worked so hard and always thought about the future and making sure that I had a job tomorrow because I didn't have a backup plan, right? It was me. So um, I hear that (laughs) there is this drive that is uh, an imperative to make sure you're, you've got employment. Um, So malemployment is not a term you hear every day. So can you give us a layman's term definition of that? And then um, some examples. Yeah. So, so if you think about, you know, kids who are graduating from college this year, last couple of years, the overwhelming share of them will be engaged in the job market. Um, you know, at the bachelor's degree level, they'll have a job. Um, unemployment, about 90% will be participating in the labor market, and the unemployment rate for that 90% will be about 2%, 3%, 4%. Maybe a little bit higher than that, but not terribly high. That the bigger labor market problem that college grads have is not getting a job, it's getting a job that uses the knowledge, skills, and abilities that are associated with a college degree, and therefore getting the earnings premium that are associated with earning a college degree. So for a lot of kids, it's not a transition to a job, it's a transition to the job in the college labor market, okay, and occupations that use those proficiencies. And so graduates who get a job but don't work in the college labor market, uh, don't get jobs in that college labor market segment, are those that we define as malemployed. They got a job, but they're not using the skills and abilities that are associated with getting a college degree. And a consequence of that is they don't get any gain from getting a degree. That economic and that social capital gain. Premium. Yeah. Yeah. So what's an example of this? So let's say um, you're a political science major. Okay. Yeah. And you graduate from school and you get a job as a claims representative or human resource associated in an insurance company. Well, I would call that a college labor market job, okay? It's not directly related to political science, but it's a job where you use, you know, your cognitive abilities, your analytical abilities, uh, and you got some upper mobility potential. So that would be something to me, a college labor market job, okay? If you graduate from college uh, in a, with a political science degree and you get a job as a bartender or a janitor, okay, then you would be malemployed. Okay, you would you could have gotten that job. The job requirements, the skill requirements in those jobs just don't require any of the knowledge, skills, and abilities that you had in college. And most of the people you're working with, your peers, you know, have much lower levels of educational attainment and lower skills, to be honest with you. Well, and I'm really was struck by the kind of difference between overeducated and underemployed and right this different way of looking at malemployment so that that was fascinating different lenses um and i like you know kind of this example i I also think of with this new gig economy and everybody's got the side gig and you know people are doing a side hustle driving lyft for driving for lyft or driving for uber um does that figure into this at all or no yeah, so, so, you know, the, the, there's not a good handle on the magnitude of sort of the gig economy. You know, the, in, in my world, they call it electronically mediated work, Ooh. right? And, and all that means is, is that your work assignments and your pay and, and the like are all kind of, they're all delivered through, through an econo- uh, electronic media, media, and you're not a wage and salary worker or a payroll worker at that firm. You're an independent worker. You're on your own. So, you know, the size of that is, is estimated to be not very large, maybe a million jobs on a base of 150, 
million, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's not viewed as, I don't think it's really, you know, important supplement for college grads right now. There's some exceptions to that, but mostly it's not such a big deal. Okay. There's a lot of hype about it in the newspapers, though, exactly. in the media. <laughs> By 23-year-old kids who have jobs, gig jobs, because you get paid nothing to be a reporter anymore. Yeah, yeah. So moving on to the next question, um, what was the rate of malemployment that you found in 2011 study versus today? Yeah, so... So okay. if, you look at, if you look at the pre-recession period, you go back to 2006, 2007, before the Great Recession, the male employment rate for college grads was pretty high. It was about a third, about one in three kids were malemployed. And when you actually get to the worst male employment year, it's actually 2012, and we went up to about 41% of all employed new college grads were malemployed. Um, you get to today, what we see happening is, is that we've gotten some gains uh, we've got the male employment rate back down to about 36% of employed college grads, but that's still at the 2010 level. We haven't gotten back to that 33% male employment rate that we had back prior to the recession. So the recovery's helped, but that transition problem for kids out of college is very, still very severe. Can you explain to me what's happening at the other end of the spectrum as someone who's 53 years old? <laughs> There, it seems like it goes, you know, kind of weird. There's high malemployment when you're younger, and then it goes down, and it goes down, and, it's go, and then it goes back up again. Well, so, so, I mean, two things with that, Mary. One is that, you know, starting off as malemployed is tough. That's something that, that's an obstacle you now have to overcome because you've had a bad transition out of college. So for youngsters who start off as malemployed, it takes a long time, maybe 20, 25 years, to make up those early earnings deficits. It's wow. very powerful. Yeah. So getting a good start is really important. That when you look at prime age workers, okay, 25 to 54 is, is how economists think of that, although that's probably an antiquated definition at this point. <laughs> but when you think about that population, uh, what you see is, is that you know, the male employment rate still is about 25%. It doesn't go away. There's still a lot of underutilization. Some of it's voluntary, but some of it's involuntary. Among older workers, what you start seeing, and the reason why we call older workers, we call that starting at age 55, is because we see labor force attachment starting to decline, right? People are just withdrawing from the job market. And so the labor force participation of people, say 55 to 64, is sharply below what it is for people 25 to 54. The people who tend to stay in the job market, though, are those with high levels of educational attainment in college labor market jobs. And they tend to stay in much, much longer through 65 to 74. You know, and their participation in the job markets remained stronger and stronger and stronger uh, over the last decade. So, so for all the workers, yep. yeah, for all the workers, you're seeing, you know, who's quitting? The answer is it's people in, um, you know, non-college labor market occupations. That's who's pulling out. And who's staying in are better educated people who have, you know, college labor market jobs that are actually easier jobs to do. You know? Right. You on the body, kid, definitely. Yeah, on the body, you know, right? absolutely. You know, you're, you know, you're in a job. I mean, you think, you know, you go back to my time, you know, getting a job where there was air conditioning in the summer and heating in the winter was pretty cool. You know? <laughs> yes, no, definitely. <laughs> so that actually leads us to choice of field matters. <laughs> Can you walk us through the data on field? Yeah, and so, as someone who's in a school of ed, I'm now really drawn yeah. to the education numbers as well. So, 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 you know, part, part of what's going on there is, is, is how do you get sorted into being malemployed? That's what you're asking. How do, how, what, what factors influence the likelihood that I'm going to be malemployed? And it really seems to be two things are really important. 
one are literacy and numeracy skills. Okay, students with lower literacy and numeracy skills just are more likely to be malemployed. Okay, it's just this, this skill issue of reading, writing, and math really matters a lot. And there's a fair number of college grads with poor literacy skills. But we estimate, you know, I've been using this data called, from something called the Program for the International Assessment of Adult Competencies to examine the skills composition of the college graduate workforce in the U.S. We find that about 18% of college graduates have uh, skills below what the OECD thinks are required to be successful in the world, literacy skills. For numeracy, about 29% of the college grads in the country have deficient skills. So, and those are the people that are more likely to become malemployed. Then the second thing you find is, and it's related to the first, is the major field of study. And with the, within the major field of study, what you find is, is that students in humanities, social sciences, uh, are much more likely to become malemployed than students in the professions. And, and part of the reason, I think that occurs, Mary, for two reasons. One is that if you study accounting, you're, you're not only, you're an entering freshman, you say, I'm gonna be an accountant, okay? And I'm gonna study accounting. It's a simultaneous decision. Right. And not only is it a simultaneous decision, but your pathway through college, both curricular and extracurricular, is written pretty strongly. The courses are laid out for you, and your junior year, you're going to go out to some local accounting company and do some auditing, right? Whether you go to Northeastern or UMass or wherever you, whatever business school you go to, that's going to happen to you in most instances, right? Civil engineering, same sort of pathway. Finance, I mean, all these kind of fields, all the health fields, right? These yeah, are all well-written fields. When you're a social sciences humanities major, the problem is you have to write that script. And so it's a much more... And this is why I think cooperative education has the potential to be so important for students in that field. Because the faculty doesn't know anything. They don't know what the, a political science professor doesn't know what you can do with a political science degree. It's the fact. Sociology professor says, yeah, go get a PhD and be like me. And be like me. Be well, a faculty well, member. The answer is, yeah. is you can do lots of good stuff with a sociology degree and a political science degree and an English degree, right? There's lots of opportunity for you. But you have to develop your own curricular and extracurricular game plan to make that work for you. And you're gonna to have to work harder in your transition from, from college, okay? To make that game plan work. And what I think is going on here is, is I think that uh, students aren't quite sure what they should be doing around sort of this career preparation in the social sciences, humanities fields, right? In education, they do know. I know what the game plan is or I wanna be a yeah. teacher, right? But in, uh, but they also, I think are really struggling around the transition from school. I, we did, we tracked, uh, for a couple of years at Drexel, I, I had my way with the exit, the senior exit survey. So I was able to, so I, I got rid of all the questions they were using and I, I asked them what they were doing, what activities they were actually undertaking the senior year to generate an outcome for themselves. Oh, excellent. You know, either going to graduate school, enlisting in the military, or, you know, in this instance, probably most importantly, what are you doing around job search? Right. Connecting yourself, right? And the thing I found was the social sciences humanities students really delayed their job search. Just they, and I don't know what it was. There's part of me that I think they just didn't want to deal with the reality of it. But I just saw these very large gaps between when these kids started the job search and kids in engineering and business did. Engineering business kids started very early their senior year. Many of the humanities social sciences kids at the exit survey said, I'll start in the fall. Well, 
you're way behind the, 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 the yeah. curve at that point. So it's going to be a much, much tougher transition. And this was in a pretty you know, weak labor market. This is, we did this back in 13, 14, 15 in that time period. So, you know, you just, I, I really think that there's a, uh, I really think there's a role for higher education there to step in and really help kids in social sciences and humanities because there's lots of opportunities for these kids. You just got to figure out how to take advantage of them. Yeah, and create that infrastructure, right? Exactly. And it's um, because without the infrastructure, it's really dependent on your family connections that you bring or your personality yep. rather than your skill set, right? Yeah, and, you, and you've seen savvy kids really do some great stuff, right? And every professor yeah. has, you know? Yeah. yeah. But the important point is they have to bring that savvy themselves. It's nothing sort of structure for these youngsters in most institutions that I can see. Yeah, no. And, and I do think that uh, students are leaving those majors because that structure is not there and they don't see the careers afterwards, right? So that's, they, that's a mistake. It feels very risky for them to be a humanities or social sciences major. Yeah, to the detriment of our society. <laughs> because, the, because what students should be thinking about when they're picking a major is, first of all, what do I like? Yeah, what do I enjoy? And second of all, what am I good at? Or what do I think I'm going to be good at? And you gotta, you gotta be able to do both of those things. And if you don't have good answers to those two questions, you're just not going to know what to do, right? And yeah. and to pick a major because oh, I think there's a good job prospect here, is I, I think a catastrophic start. I think understanding what you like and what you're good at, and picking a major, and then figuring out how do I make this work for me. And okay, I'm going to major in psychology, but I'm probably not going to be a psychologist. How can I make that work for me? You know, can I get a job in a human resource organization? You know, where can I go? Can I, where do I fit in in the nonprofit sector? You know, where do I fit in in the banking system, right? I mean, there's, there's all sorts of places you can figure this out, but you got to get out in the world. And the problem is the institutions generally don't help you do that. Right. And we started to talk about um, how important co-op is with that. And so could you talk a little about more about co-op, but also really the difference between internship and co-op? Because I think if you haven't been at a co-op school, you don't really know what it is and how it's different from internships. Yeah. So, so, so the first thing is, is people refer to internships as jobs and they're not. Okay. A job occurs in a market where exchange occurs. And that exchange says, I value your labor and I'm going to pay for that labor and you're going to supply a good quality of labor to me. So firms are invested in you when you have a job. They're often not invested in people when they have an internship. You know, one of the horrible things I could do to a lot of your listeners would be to call them up and say, hey, can you take a kid this summer? Right. And then they're right. sitting around figuring out, OK, what, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to do with that kid? <laughs> Versus somebody who calls you up and says, hey, Mary, I'm looking for a smart kid to do this. Right. right? And so in, in an important sense, that's the difference between co-op and internship. Okay. I think the idea that, a, that the employer values this, the work that's going to be provided by this, by this individual. The second thing that you would hope for in this is that the motive for an employer is to use the work experience primarily as tryout employment. Employers are very poor at, one of the worst ways to hire somebody is to look at a resume and interview them, right? It just right. Doesn't, doesn't really predict much. And it turns out that one among the best predictors of future productivity is tryout employment. You know, that you get somebody in, and, and you see in a lot of firms all the time, um, what they do is they'll hire somebody through a temporary help company as a source of tryout employment, right? Yeah, a lot of college graduates actually get their job. It's kind of postgraduate co-op. Right. That's and how so, I got my first job. I, it was a temp, and it turned permanent. Yeah. So... <laughs> 
so, but that, you know, it's kind of an after college co-op that, yeah. you know, you're paying a fee or somebody's right. paying a fee. So, so the upshot of this is, 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 you know, the motive you really want is this trial and employment. And what we find is, is that when you look at the nature of gains you get for co-op, you know, the gains uh, uh, are really around that search and fit. They're really, they occur in the first two or three years where we just have better employment rates. And, and we've done studies of, you know, sourcing. We, we, we went to a bunch of big firms and they gave us all their hiring records. And what we found was, was that uh, this was probably, co-op with the work experience, this kind of work experience for college grads was probably the single best way for the firm to make new hires. Uh, because they had a good understanding and it hugely increased the employment rates of minority kids, you know, because I was no longer hiring a minority kid when I made the permanent hire. So, so it seems like co-op in, in many ways, the, you know, a true work experience where we have paid compensation matters a lot. And then I think the second part of it is the institution has to work really hard at developing job for the individual kid. They got to say, I got Mary Churchill here. This is what her interests, her aptitudes, her abilities are. Here's the right place for me to put this kid. You know, yeah, not sure and, always, I, would, I would say that would be the ideal. I'm not sure we always do it, but, that's, but that would be the ideal. Well, and it really forces the institution to develop deeper relationships with local employers as Absolutely. well. I mean, that's, or that's or national employers. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, all over the, you know, and, and right. to, to be able to take a political science kid and say, well, you know what, you're going to do a term in Washington. You know, we're going to put you down a federal agency. We're going to put you in Congress. You know, you're going to get this experience, you know, and you're going to get paid. So moving on to this topic of today's college graduates and back to the issue of malemployment, is, is it still a problem? And how does uh, the growing problem of student debt uh, exacerbate that? So yes, it's still a problem. Again, you know, uh, the, for, if, you, if, you, if you look at kids who graduated in 2017, 2018, I don't know about the class of 2019, but I'm sure it's pretty close. Still about a third, about 36% actually, these youngsters are male employed. So it's still quite high. Yeah. Um, it's hard to ratchet that down, um, even as the economy, you know, this is, this, is, this is an economy with very large numbers of job vacancies, very high demand, and yet we're still not able to get this thing down to where it would be even, you know, reasonable, right? And we've still got more than a third of kids just making these terrible transitions. So, uh, so the malemployment problem is alive with us and large. The, the second element to this is, is that it will have a very powerful impact on student debt with respect to loan default. Um, students that, you know, you don't get any of the earnings premium when you become malemployed. So when, when you look at the size of the earnings advantage between a kid who gets a college labor market job and a high school grad, a kid with a college labor market job earns twice with the high school grad earns double. Okay. The kid who's male employed earns nothing more than the high school grad. So your ability to finance that debt, if you're male employed, is no is the same as if you hadn't gone to college. So you haven't gone to college, okay, and you don't have the debt versus, yeah, I went to college, I have this debt, but I have no proficient, I have no more uh, uh, access to employment that would give me the ability to pay off this debt than if I hadn't gone. So it's a train wreck. And this is one of the reasons why you're seeing uh, some legislative proposals now saying, we want to uh, make colleges have a stake in, uh, in college loans. And as kids start defaulting, we want the colleges to be on the hook for a share of that default. Okay, 
Why? To make the colleges make sure these kids get a better transition into college later life jobs. That's what that's about. That's depressing. <laughs> well, no, and it just makes me think kind of, um, you know, there's so much bad press right now about, you know, why does, why do you need to go to college? And my 14 year old even is like, I don't know why I need to go to college. I hear in the papers all the time or on the news all the time that you don't need to go to college. And there are all these success stories of people who, you know, are billionaires that didn't finish college or didn't go to college. Um, but do you think there is still a strong argument uh, for going to college? Oh, completely. <laughs> the, the, I would hope so. <laughs> but, but, well, but here's the point that, that is, is going to college for everyone sensible? If you don't have strong skills, remember college, no matter what college you go to in most sense, it's college is what you make of it, right? right? Anyone that's been a teacher, that's been an educator knows what matters is who's on the other side of that classroom, right? My ability to be a good teacher is only partially influenced by my own behavior, right? It's a lot of it's got to do with on, who's on the other side of that table. And so for many kids, you know, if you don't have strong skills, college is probably a very bad place for you to be. Unfortunately, we've had a public policy of saying college for all. So we're pumping all these kids into the post-secondary education system who have almost no chance of graduating. Right. You know, we, we tracked through kids uh, from the Philadelphia uh, public school system. We did a longitudinal study over many, many years and tracked these kids through high school into college and seven years after college, after um, high school completion to kind of find out what their college completion rates were. And what we found, and, and remember, Philadelphia public schools, are, it, it's, all, it's all a prep school system. The whole thing is everybody goes to college. And what we found was out of that, that, that cohort of kids at, who ended up graduating from high school, and by the way, a large fraction of those kids didn't graduate. Of those who did graduate, only one in five got any kind of degree at all, degree or certificate, Ooh. one in five. So for you know overwhelming share of these kids, they just didn't have the skills. That what we found is they just didn't have the skills to to go to college. Yet we pushed a lot of them in, you know. And when you push them in, and then then they you know they accumulate this debt and that they're unable to pay off. And then there's another set of kids that we push into college. Did get a four-year college degree, and they got to be malemployed. And they got to be malemployed because they didn't have the skills, and they went into majors that they couldn't figure out how to do the transition effectively. Well, so do you think that for the kids that aren't ready or don't have the skills, uh, going to a co-op school, going to a co-op college is, is really a safer bet for parents? I think, if you, I, think if you, I think if you have poor reading, writing, and math skills, you need to get your reading, writing, and math skills improved. Yeah. Uh, they are yeah. the sine qua non for success in the job market. And college is not very good at fixing that. Literacy and numeracy skills, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, college, college is, a way, is a place where you... The literacy and numeracy skills are the base. Right. We assume like, you have those coming yeah, in. You know? Right. 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 I mean, because so I think sometimes they they don't have the literacy and numeracy skills because they don't have the the drive or the the work habits that are required to 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 build those skills. Um, and that and that's what I've seen. But maybe that maybe that's just my world. I'm in with a 14 year old. Um, so I have one more question before we wrap up, and it's around white collar apprenticeships. Um, and there, ha you know, there's been a resurgence in this white collar apprenticeships literature, and also virtual apprenticeships. But this return of apprenticeships um, is there a difference between apprenticeships and co-ops? So apprenticeships usually, uh, interestingly enough, 
they, they kind of get sold to something you do with young people, but that is not who, go in, who goes into an apprenticeship. Uh, apprenticeships are, if you go into the construction trades, you went to an apprenticeship training site, the average person would be 28, 30 years old. Um, so it's, it's really for older people that go into apprentices. There's a lot of, unions are very good at saying, oh, we're gonna do pre-apprenticeship training, and they do, and they give the kid a piece of paper saying you're now eligible to be an apprentice, but the kids never actually figure out how to become an apprentice, right? that you're trying to see some effort to create apprenticeship in uh, some white collar jobs, but the white collar jobs where the apprenticeships are being created are actually quite low end. So to be something like a community health worker, uh, maybe a home health aid, I mean, these sorts of kinds of, of jobs where there's not a formal certification required that would, you know, so for example, among the most rapidly expanding fields in the American economy, the health fields, right? Right that when you look at the health fields, um, they all have very strong practical learning activities in the professions, right? You've, you've got to go to school, but you also have to go out there and do some practicums to actually learn how to be a speech therapist or an x-ray tech or whatever the, you know, the field is, as opposed to being an economist, we just go get some degrees and you say, I'm an economist and that's it, right? So, so the right, so, you no, know, it is though, right? I mean, yeah, just sort of self or a sociologist or a political yeah, scientist or exactly, whatever, right? You know? So, so the upshot of this is is that is that uh, uh, in the health field, which is really a very important source of new job creation, the only area where you're seeing this is very low health end jobs, home health assistant, uh, personal care attendant, going to be tremendous numbers of jobs there. But these are jobs you're going to pay, you know, 12, 13, 14 bucks an hour, yeah, yeah, that you know. Can do I expect to see a substitution of the degrees for uh, uh, of apprenticeship for college degrees in the near term? I'd say that's very unlikely. What will what I think will change things down the road is if firms are allowed to test for reading, writing, and math proficiencies. Right now, that's illegal, but I think it's eroding. And when that erosion starts to become more complete, and I can directly test for people's proficiencies. I'm not going to need that. Oh, I have a degree from Boston University, so I know what my I know this kid's got strong reading, writing, math skills, right? I can right. just test the, I could test that kid when they're 19 years old and say, ah, you know, really smart kid. Uh, boom, I'm going to hire, right? I mean, that's so. So I think that's where the erosion sort of will begin. But I think we're a long way off um, from apprenticeship or other kinds of ports of ports of entry into professional, technical, managerial high-level sales occupations that don't, that outside of the college system. Right. So, right. so I, I would think, I would think, you know, and that's, remember, this is about 35% of the jobs in the American economy, you know, and the earnings premium form is very high. So, so, you know, if a kid can go to college and make something out of college, absolutely they should go. What you need to be careful about is, is somebody in your high school, and this is all high schools are doing this now, is, is saying, oh, everybody needs to go to college. That's a bad idea. Right. Right. So do you think there's anything that you want to talk about that we haven't covered yet? Did I, I feel like I've asked you a lot. You've answered a lot. This has all been, I've learned a tremendous amount in such a short time. I don't, I don't know. I probably, if I go on anymore, Mary, I'd probably just even be more confusing. So. <laughs> no, this is all good. And I think, you know, I'm thinking about it as a college professor, a college administrator, the mother of a 14-year-old, really, I mean, and the world has changed, the world is changing, but um, we still need jobs, and jobs still are pretty 
traditional, right? I mean, we have lots of change happening, but the, the jobs haven't changed that much. Remember, so. Mary, what do people want out of work? Okay. And the basic human values around this are similar around the world. They want employment stability, right? I want a solid anchor of jobs. So that means I want a wage and salary relationship. I don't want to do the gig thing. I don't want to be self-employed. Right, right. And second, I want benefits. I want healthcare benefits. That's right. The second thing they want is a fair wage and benefits, right? Third thing they want is upward mobility. Yeah. You know, and then the fourth thing they want is kind of a pleasant place to work that's not, you know, nasty. And this is true across the world. And you sit there and say, where do I find that? You find it in wage and salary jobs and big firms. That's where you find it. Right, right. That are weathering through all these storms, definitely. Right. So we have this last fun question for you about this uh, Robert Palmer song. So we heard that you do other audio recordings and in one unnamed venue, you were cued by the lead-in song, Robert Palmer song. Yes. You're simply irresistible. <laughs> That's right. So there's a, uh, you know. The, so uh, how did that happen? It's a funny story. So, so over at Wharton, uh, business school they have a uh, a, a radio station on Sirius it's, it's a Wharton radio station and uh, uh, Peter Capelli is uh, runs a show on kind of labor labor economics issues and because I'm up the street I'm a frequent visitor ah, excellent. Uh, to a show and I've kind of gotten to know the producer and the like and so I, I won't get into all the gory detail but there's a little <laughs> bit of a gag uh, they started playing simply irresistible and now that's sort of my you know like when a pitcher comes out of the bullpen that's a cue up song Oh, that's oh, awesome. sort of my cue up song for, for the show. And he reminds the audience, he goes, for those regular listeners, they can hear this song, you know who it is. Paul is on with us today. Exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. And, you know, I am the right age cohort for that. I, I heard that. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, you th think of the video, right? You got that. Well, how, how, I think how it all gets started is I was talking with an organizational development professor while I was over there and Capelli was there. And we were talking about videos. And I said, well, probably the greatest video of all time was Simply Irresistible. Yes. <laughs> you know, I said, ah, you can't take your eyes off that thing, you know. It was and, beautiful. Yeah. Oh. And so that sort of stuck after that, yeah. Oh. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Pleasure. Harrington. And uh, next time we'll have the music queued up and ready to go right. when Perfect. you enter the scene. Um, have a great day. And I look forward to talking to you again. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay. See you later, Mary. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you will come back soon for the next installation of Experience Ed. As we continue to talk about the neuroscience and sociology of enhancing higher education. By combining direct experience with classical academic learning.